Tonight's show is supported in part by The Great Courses Plus. Later, we'll have details on how you can get a free month of unlimited access to their thousands of online lectures on subjects like history, science, and even photography, all taught by top professors. So I feel like we first said we were going to do this topic almost two years ago on maybe our third episode or something. (laughs) Well, it was a long ways back, only 35 episodes late, and then you made it the butt of a running joke. So as some of you may have heard in our previous outros... So many topics, so little time. Maybe we should try to do more shows. I don't know if we can handle that, and we're maxing the bandwidth as it is. On that note, we're planning to start posting weekly for three weeks, and then take one week off for administration, research, and to do exclusive appearances on Patreon. If you've been paying attention, you might have noticed that we've already done this once. Tonight's show is the third one in a row to come out on three consecutive Mondays. The new schedule should allow us to provide you more shows— more often, and also rather than have a season where we're down for months, we'll be posting nearly year-round. There are no seasons really in podcasting, but some folks take them anyway, and some shows are only 12 episodes. You know what I'm talking about, Serial. To give you an idea of what this means for us, it should double our annual output. There will still be some additional dark dates around national holidays here and there, but we'll do our best to keep you guys happy. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. I know how the pyramids were built. Ed Leeds Skalnan, builder of the Coral Castle. Join us tonight for a look at what was once called the eighth wonder of the world, the Coral Castle. Hey, have you ever been to Florida? Yes, I have. It's been a long time, actually. I haven't been since I was a kid. I went... Like, a few years after the Epcot Center opened with my mom. (laughs) Was that 82? It was way long time ago. I remember that the monorail caught on fire. (laughs) You had nothing to do with that. Probably look it up online. But yeah, it was uh, was pretty cool. The thing that I really distinctly remember, though, was getting out of the car in the parking lot. So excited. And like, the minute I opened the door and stepped outside, I felt like I was breathing in hot water. (laughs) (laughs) That's, That's what people say. Well, imagine how the conquistadors must have felt, like Pedro Menendez de Avales, when he and his troops landed in St. Augustine and founded the oldest, longest inhabited European settlement in the United States. But, oh. you know, all that, the, the metal breastplates and the helmets, oh, yeah. like a lot of velvet, I'm guessing. It's <laughs> like, hey, this is a good place. Let's stop here. Mosquitoes. It's humid. Yeah. They were probably pretty right, by man, especially uh, after being on that boat. Oh, God, yes. So we're going to talk about the Coral Castle which right now is 30 miles south of Miami. <laughs> right. Well, it did go, it it wasn't did go through, always no, it went through a hurricane, too, uh, standing, yes. standing tall after uh, Hurricane Andrew. Yes, yeah. which is Category 5. That's right. And uh, we have found out through research in the ARC that it would stand tall in a storm they don't even have, like a Category yeah. 50. <laughs> <laughs> it basically has not moved. It, it's so heavy, yeah. the pieces of it. It's immobile. Well, let's tell everybody what it is. Sure. We did joke about covering this for a long time. In fact, this episode, this I, the idea of this episode for me was one of the impetuses for doing our show. Oh, like when you, I was thinking like the top five things I really wanted to talk about. Yeah, you know, and actually it, it was funny when Scott and I first started to do a podcast or thought, even thought about the idea, we wanted to, to do a test episode. And we said like, well, just just pick one. What's been interesting to us 
so far. And it was a Coral Castle. Yeah. Because it's got, one, a great eccentric guy at the center of it, an enduring mystery that you can, you know, poo-poo, or if you dive deeper, maybe start to think like, wow, maybe we don't know how he did it. Yeah. So it's got all the great elements in there of a great episode. It's a really amazing story, and it actually is such an intriguing story that it's been on pretty much every mystery show there ever was. Yeah. It was on In Search Of famously. Right. It was Unsolved on Mysteries. Unsolved Mysteries. Yep. It's been on all those shows that are make up pretty much the entire History Channel now. <laughs> the <laughs> History just, Channel yeah. started out as History, then it went to the Hitler Channel, and now it's uh, Space <laughs> Aliens. <laughs> right. Well, yeah. But you I know, still love it, though. I think when Scott was kind of making fun of it, if you listen back to our previous outros, as, as I'd mentioned, next week's episode is probably not going to be about the Coral Castle. Because it is one of those kind of things like, it's just, is this just an amusement park? Is yeah. that, you know, and a guy like, sure, it's kind of a monumental or it's a big task, but really it's just simple methods he used. Well, and we're going to talk about that. And it's interesting that you should say, is this just an amusement park? Because right. that, in, in the time that this was built, that is what was going on in Florida. The, yeah. the Great American Road Trip was starting to be a part of uh, of the zeitgeist. There's a word I haven't gotten used in a while. And, uh, you <laughs> that's know, one episode out of 30 that he hasn't used. <laughs> okay. But uh, that and, you know, Disneyland right, uh, was obviously right. a big thing. And people are like, oh, wow, let's, there, here's something that can happen. So yeah. lots of little things were popping up. Route 66 was a big deal. So there was that sort of, that paradigm of like little strange outposts that you could visit right. as you went from one part to another. And yeah. Florida at the time was a hot commodity. It was, yeah. People were getting land for cheap down there. A lot of people were moving there. The climate was considered very friendly for whatever ails you, which we'll come back to in a minute. Right. And and one of the other fascinating things about the Coral Castle, actually, is that several movies were shot there, including if you guys have been following our Twitter account, which is a good good way to keep on top of what we're up to if you're on Twitter. Um, I tweeted a picture of El Santo in the movie (laughs) El Puño de la Muerte, which is the fist of death. Um, Anyway, El Santo, who actually was a great hero to me. Many people wrote in after I tweeted that. He's a popular figure. I think uh, if you grew up in New York especially, there's a a, a recording artist I really like, uh, Santo Gold, and she was inspired by the name. I guess his commercials would come up. Yeah. For local New York City television, and he'd endorse things, you know, because he, yeah. he's a showman. So yeah. a lot of these guys, you know, they have side gigs. There were actually a lot of other movies shot at the Coral Castle, including in 1958, The Wild Woman from Wongo. Oh, I love that title. And yeah. uh, Naked on the Moon, 1960. <laughs> Do you see a, a theme here emerging? Yeah. 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 Well, it certainly brought people to the castle. Well, it certainly, yeah. So let's talk about what exactly it is. The Coral Castle is a structure that this man, a Latvian immigrant named Ed Leedskalnen, Built by himself, yeah, at night <laughs> with no machines, right? I'm using the term machine a little bit loosely because there's some people that think that he had simple machines that he built, but I'm just saying there were no cranes, there were no bulldozers, there were no yes. anything, and that's significant because the castle consists of 1,100 tons of oolite limestone. Some of these stones are twice the size of the blocks that were used to build the pyramids. In fact, one of them is 30 tons, one block, a single block. Yeah, that's crazy if you can picture that. But it's several million pounds of rock. Right. That this man quarried himself. Yes. Not only quarried it, stood it up into these huge vertical structures, some 40 feet tall, put it together, built walls out of it with joints that were as tight as the perfect joints of the pyramids. Yeah. All this stuff he did alone. And here's the thing about him. He was just over five feet tall 
weighed maybe 120 pounds soaking wet, yeah. had tuberculosis, and seemed like he might have been suffering from malnutrition his whole life. Right. <laughs> so yeah. it's pretty crazy that this guy was doing this, and he was working alone at night in the yeah. dark, never let anyone watch what he was doing. People would sneak up. Of course, the neighbors got very suspicious because yes. when they first started seeing what he was doing, it's like, wait, did anybody help you? No. Do you have any massive tools, uh, any industrial machinery? No. How is he doing this? It's sparking a ton of curiosity. So they would spy on him. And then what they would say is that he always kind of sensed that people were looking at him. Yeah. And he was very polite, very polite man. He would just stop and kind of wave and yeah. then just wait there yeah. until they got bored and went away. And wander away or yeah. go, you know, he refused to work in front of them. Now, was it ever repudiated that people never saw him working? Because I think I read somewhere it's like, no, no, people saw him working, but he was well, we're going to get to that later. Yeah. There are affidavits about yeah. his work and there is him working some on camera, even right. some film that Universal shot. However, this is the important they don't part. show him moving the blocks. Exactly. That's it's, the real key It's more key quarrying yeah. type stuff. And they don't show him cutting either. Right. That's the so. important part. You got to realize that uh, he's cutting into really bedrock. Scott, another of Scott's favorite words here. Yes. Well, I learned about it from our show <laughs> in, during in Oak Southern, Island. That's right. So, well, see, in Southern Florida, this type of uh, calcium carbonate bedrock, uh, which forms oolite. Yes is found throughout southern Florida, these swampy areas. And there's only a few inches of topsoil. So once you scrape that away- In most places, yes. Right, in most places. And, and it, it goes down 4,000 feet. That's crazy. Yeah. I know. That, yeah. But now think about this. You can make, cut, it'd be easy to make cuts all the way around it, but how do you cut the slice of the, uh, the cheese there on the bottom? Yeah, and, well, that's and a good then, question. And then raise it enough to get it out of there. That's a good question. So Ed built this place, put it together. He actually, initially, I think he referred to it as Ed's place. Yes. He eventually named it Rock Gate. Right. It was not called the Coral Castle while he was alive. Right. And we'll get to that later. But he, d he did call it Rock Gate or Rock Gate Park eventually. And... The reason that he called it that was because it had a huge rock gate at the front and the back. There was a three-ton gate at the back. At the front was one of the main marvels of this place called the nine-ton door. And this door yeah. was made from a nine-ton piece of coral that would swivel. It had an axis through the middle of it, and it would swivel around, and it was on some kind of bearing. And it was so easy to turn that a child could push it with their finger. And it yeah. made no noise. It was yeah. silent. And the tolerances were like... I think a quarter inch. Yeah, all very or, All the way around. Like the body panels on a Ferrari. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, yeah, but getting there, yeah. But it was, I believe it was a truck bearing. Yes, it was a, yeah. a, a Ford, uh, which a, there was a lot of Ford parts actually right. In, right. The, in the Coral Castle. It was a truck bearing. And for 40 years, that door operated perfectly. Yeah. With no noise, no problem, resting all nine tons of its weight on a small pie-shaped stone that was only a foot in diameter. And allegedly, the University of Florida analyzed that stone and determined that it was of unknown origin. Wait, wait, wait. <laughs> what do you mean unknown origin? I'm talking about a space stone. <laughs> they, they couldn't tell what type of rock it was. Well, this is a, a supposed long-time report. However, yeah. when people have recently, including some, one of the book authors from one of the books that we read in preparation for this show and other folks have tried to contact the university and ask them about the tests they did on that stone, they've been cagey about it. They just, oh, interesting. They won't say. They don't really know for certain. Yeah, and yeah. I couldn't find any information about where that stone was now. Oh. I don't know if it's still there under yeah. the nine-ton gate, which is still there, by the way. 
I don't know, but eventually the bearing rusted and it started yeah. having problems and they needed to fix it. And this was after Mr. Leedskalnin had passed away. This was in 1986. It failed. And yeah. there's varying stories on this, but essentially six to eight workers <laughs> had to show up with a 20 or in other stories, 50 ton crane. Right. They needed and a laser yeah. beam. I don't know what the laser did <laughs> for alignment. <laughs> well, you got to have laser beams, so yeah. they came out to remove and reinstall it, and they tried to fix it. But they, that's what they had to use. This thing that this one man built by himself. Yeah. And by the way, in addition to how heavy it was and how well it worked and how tight the tolerances were and how easy it was to turn, it was also perfectly balanced. Yeah, that's the key. And he was able to find that moment. Which mm-hmm. is, I think that's what they call it. Right? Yeah, I feel I think like so. I, I briefly studied mechanical engineering before uh, <laughs> problems with calculus. I, well, that's, that's the point of this. A very, very heavy object, if balanced properly, you can spin on an axis, yes. which is what he did. Yeah, so he drilled a hole through the center lengthwise, had an, uh, a steel rod, I believe, as kind of the spindle on this thing. Right. And just a balance point. Yeah. Yeah. They're pretty amazing. So, and they, and, oh, the other thing is that even after they fixed it, it yeah. never turned as easy well, as it, when yeah, he did it. Yeah, it worked for about 10 years, yeah. not as great as it initially did, and yeah. then it failed again. Apparently, the new caretakers of the park weren't keeping the bearing properly lubricated, and it's right down there at the beach. And, you know, as a former resident of oh, yeah. North Carolina, I can tell you down where my family's place is at the beach, if you leave a nail out... yeah. <laughs> overnight. Overnight. It's like a <laughs> pile of dusty rust in the morning. So, yeah, yeah. So obviously, Ed took care of it for quite some time. But even after he died, however it was that he took care of it, it continued yeah. to work very well for a long time after he passed away. Right. The design was was well implemented. But just keep this in mind, it took six men, several large, healthy people to remove it. Yes. And with a crane. Let's talk a little bit more about the park and its layout and what it's like. And this is not a huge place. It was originally on a two-acre site, and you can see you can find maps of it online that talk about where the different things were. But it very much had a certain sort of or like garden-like orientation. It's a rock sculpture garden. That's what it is, but a large and amazing one. Right. Yeah. And he had inside of it his living quarters were a, a wooden shack that was kind of elevated. But eventually, he built stone living quarters, which yeah. was uh, one place that was strictly off limits for people to visit when uh, because. The other thing that he did was he had tours. Yeah. And so once he built it, he made it into an attraction and people could come and for 10 cents, they could tour. And I think for more, for like 30 cents, it would be a guided tour with him. Well, yeah, 20, he started charging 25 cents. And and he was such a kind-hearted guy. That if you if you said you didn't have any money, he would let you get in for free and give you a tour. You know why? Because he showed up that way to that area penniless. We're going to talk a lot about him tonight. You're going to hear a lot of interesting things about him, including some I'm betting that a lot of people have never heard, even Coral Castle aficionados, Mm. because we have an interview with somebody who has a little more insight into Ed's past than most people. We have an in. Yeah, we have an in. But the thing that I wanted to say was that he was generally considered a very, very kind-hearted person. He loved kids. Kids would come to the park and play. A lot of the kids who grew up, who've been interviewed now that they're older, have said he would remember me by my name. He yeah. never forgot a face. He knew I had been there before. And when they were in that first location, which was in Florida City, Florida, and we're going to talk about that a little bit later, it was an activity for the locals to go on Sundays and hang out there. Yeah. Just kind of like, you know. He wanted a nice place, not only for himself to reflect, but, you know, for visitors yeah. and tourists to come. But it was kind of the castle part, the two-story part. He lived in the upper part, the second story yeah. by himself. Very Spartan conditions. 
Uh, With a shop underneath it. Yes. Yeah. This is all made out of rock. Okay, so it's not like a well-furnished cabin. No, not at all. He lived very primitively. He was not glamping. Didn't didn't have electricity, (laughs) except that he had something that generated electricity, I believe. Yes. We'll get to that later. We will talk about that. It was a very simple life, and he grew his own vegetables, and often he, apparently he had more than he needed, and he would trade that for other things in town, and, and the locals kind of poked oh, fun at him. Just you know, like just, Elisha Rivas. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, yeah. You're seeing a theme of character here in that it's the funny, kind, eccentric, hermit-type guy. Yes. Doing something pretty amazing. And the other really interesting thing about it is why he claimed he built it. And yes. this is one of my favorite parts of the story. He always said that he built it for his sweet 16. And that's all he would say. He eventually, he started to tell a story. And during the tours, he would say, he would talk of this girl named Agnes Scuffs, who he was slated to marry in his home country of Latvia. But she backed out the day of the wedding. Right when she was about to say, I do. Cold feet. Yeah. Runaway bride. She apparently walked out of the church or and disappeared, oh. never to be seen again, and poor Ed was left. And because of his embarrassment, yeah. he and she was ten years his junior, as the story went. Right. He wound up leaving the country and he came to America. No, he really was devastated. It messed with him for the rest of his life, we think. And yeah. If you believe the story. If you believe the story. The other amazing thing about the Sweet 16 aspect of it is that, you know, I'm a child of the 80s. I have to admit it. I think I've made it pretty clear that uh, Forrest and I are uh, old. Getting up there. <laughs> <laughs> okay, sure. I don't know. I remember yeah. thinking when my grandfather was the age I am now that I thought he was oh. ancient. No, no. You know, when I was, I remember when I was a kid, if you were 30, like, wow, you're an adult. Yeah. Like, you're old. You're, yeah. you know, yeah. Well, I went to high school in the 80s. Right. And I am going to say, just like every old person before you, that music was at its best. <laughs> Yeah, um, yeah, sure. <laughs> it's yeah. gone downhill, if you ask me. But I'm not going to get into that. But yeah. what I am going to say is that there was a musician that I really liked that I think everyone has heard of, even if you are just a tiny little millennial, and that's yeah. Billy Idol. Oh, come on, man. Billy Rebel, Idol. Rebel Yell? Yes. Get some classics. He's I actually added. saw him in concert in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Oh, the university remember. there? Yeah, it was right after they had built the Dean Dome, which is named for uh, Coach Dean Smith. Oh, yeah. And mm-hmm. It was an amazing structure, but... It was an amazing, amazing show, and I remember he had just had a motorcycle accident. And oh, yeah, yeah. came out and did a show with a full leg cast. Uh, <laughs> wow. pretty amazing, and a cane. Yeah. Well, he may have been medicated, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah. Well, I, you know, yeah. he certainly got all the songs. He nailed the songs, I'll <laughs> exactly. tell you that. Yeah. But yeah. Um, one of the songs that he sang was off his album, Whiplash Smile, which was one of my favorite albums of his, and that song is called Sweet Sixteen. Yeah. Now, if you've heard the song, you know it really well. Some of you might know what inspired it. Some of you might not. Some of you might have been listening to it for years, or maybe not so much recently, yeah, right. <laughs> but, and, and not realize this, but it was inspired by the Coral Castle and Ed Leeds Skalnan. Yeah. And the song is actually about Ed. Yeah. Which is pretty amazing. Billy went to the Coral Castle and some people have said that he shot the video there mm-hmm. for the song, but I can't find any video that was shot there. The, the official video for the song is shot clearly in a studio or some other location. Yeah. But there are photos of him. I don't know if you know, but there's this website now called Husay, W-H-O-S-A-Y, which appears to be like a social networking public presence website just for famous people. Oh, really? That's interesting. Yeah. yeah. It must have some kind of really well-built controls to protect them and anonymity and everything, because I've mm-hmm. seen a few celebrities who post things on there, and then it goes out to Facebook or Twitter or whatever. But it's ah. there's something about it that allows you to... 
It's a gateway. Have a defense. Yeah, yeah, a gateway. And I was on Billy's Who Say site the other day. And if you look, you don't even have to scroll down. There's like a photo feed. Yeah. You're going back that far. I think it was August of last year, maybe. He posted a really old Polaroid of him at the Coral Castle sitting in one of the chairs. Oh, cool. Yeah. And he says, you know, this is me at the Coral Castle. So we know that that, that that inspired him to write that song. I actually did try futilely to get <laughs> in touch with him. Out. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to talk to him, but I found online that his uh, interview rate was $10,000. And oh. <laughs> what I thought maybe yeah. I could get, like, find some kind of back way in it, there. It but blew no. our five-year budget just to <laughs> do one interview snippet. Was, yeah. Uh, yeah, man, I did, that was, it was really cool. That's it. Yeah. yeah. There are some sources that say he was inspired by the In Search of episode. Oh, There's others yeah. that say he was in the area doing charity for a hurricane when he came across oh, the whole castle, but yeah. it doesn't add up because right. the hurricane that that would have been would have been Hurricane Andrew, which happened in uh, 1992. Yeah. And the song came out in 86. So that doesn't make sense. More likely, the person who said he might have seen it on In Search Of saw it there, maybe oh, went yeah. to visit it, yeah. something like that. But either way... The, the point is, well, is that... Billy, if you want to put yeah. the record straight, <laughs> give us a call. Give us a, tell us uh, in your yeah. own words. Yeah. When you see it, it's impressive, uh, mm-hmm. And it sticks with you. And yeah. then obviously it, it inspired him. I love the lyrics of that song. And one of my favorites is, built a moon for a rocking chair. Yeah. Which is, you know, <laughs> no, if you look did. at the photos, right. There's a lot of astronomical symbolism there. Uh, crescent moons and planets. And there's a Polaris telescope he'd carved out of stone. So he was into astronomy. Yeah. The he, planets. It figures Ed, not Billy. Exactly. Yeah. Billy well, might be into he it. He might too. be into it. Maybe that's what impressed well, him. We but, don't know because he yeah. won't answer our calls. <laughs> right. As if this wasn't amazing enough, he builds this thing. He built it by himself. 1,100 tons of oolite. We looked up how to say that. <laughs> right. We'll stop talking about pronunciation. Yeah. If you're from to... the town of oolite, we're, you know, we're sorry. <laughs> Is yeah. that a town? I'm sure there is. Right. I'm sure there's some oh, of Oolite limestone yeah. bedrock. He built this thing, perfect joints, perfect seams, amazing 40-foot-tall, 30-ton stones. Yeah, no mortar. It all rests on its own weight. Yeah, yeah. there's no mortar of any kind. Right. It's what, and I know at least in ancient cultures, they call a gravity wall. Yeah. Because gravity is all that holds it together, and gravity is going to come up a lot tonight. Oh, yeah. But after it was built, about 11 years after it was built, yeah. he moved the whole thing. <laughs> by himself. Ten, 10 miles north. He yeah. moved it from Florida City to Homestead, Florida. 10 miles up the road. Yeah, towards yeah. Miami, closer to Miami. I mean, he took it apart brick by brick or giant, large, large you know, chunk by large bus, chunk, yeah. stone by school bus <laughs> yeah, stone, yeah, yeah. and took it 10 miles north. And this was a really big deal. And this further enhanced the mystery around him. To clarify, he started in 1928. Yes. Right? And then how long was it up there before he decided to move? He moved it in 1939. Okay. 11 years later. Okay. Yeah. So this move tells you a couple of things. One is that he is so comfortable with his craft that he doesn't really think twice about moving this thing that (laughs) no other man probably could have built. Right. And putting it back together. It's just kind of unbelievable. And we'll talk about the reasons that he might have moved it here in a little bit, but... One of the stories in the In Search Of, which has a fair amount of misinformation in it. It's one of our favorite shows Well, of it's, all a, time it's just it. a little uh, light, we'll yeah, say. It's yeah. a little light. <laughs> the acting, if you can find The In Search Of, it's called uh, the Mystery Castle or um, Castle of Mystery, yes, I think exactly. it's called that right. episode. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What happens is this guy comes with a truck to move the stones. A flatbed truck, just right. a, you know, industrial truck there. The lighter stones, by the way, not <laughs> yeah. the 30-ton stone. Because yeah. if you put a 30-ton stone on a truck, it's going <laughs> to... 
be a flat truck. (laughs) So he hires this guy. The guy comes, he parks the truck. And in the in search of, they show him like, Ed's like, go around the corner, (laughs) go over there. And so the guy walks away around the corner. You hear this little sound effects like, (laughs) guy turns around, comes back. The rock, the five ton stone is on the back of the truck. The story I'd heard years ago was that the truck driver, a local man who he'd paid to help him move. A dollar a trip. Paid him a dollar a trip. Well, that was a lot of money. Well, it was enough money back then that he did it. Plus people, you know, they're friendly, neighborly kind of folks. The guy was going to help him. That's the story I heard was the guy pulls up in his truck. Hey, can I use your restroom? Oh, sure. He goes to use the restroom, comes back, and Ed has already loaded it without his help. Yes. That's another version of it. But longer minutes than what you see in the in search of where it's like, Bring, and then, he, you know, he turns around two seconds later and it's up there. So then it's like, how is he doing that? And it, there was talk of an ability to levitate stone. Yeah. And so that's what a lot of people are sort of implying. He could levitate the rocks up onto the truck or levitate them into position. Some of the other things that Ed did that have to be read to be believed is he wrote a couple of <laughs> yeah. books or booklets, or I would maybe call them pamphlets. Every eccentric does. Yeah. yeah. He wrote one called A Book in Every Home. And that was broken into three sections. The first section mm-hmm. is actually called Sweet 16. Mm. This is a philosophical diatribe on the <laughs> nature of what the Sweet 16 was. Ah. And for him, he described it as a girl who was new. By the way, let me just tell you, this is the most <laughs> politically incorrect stuff. <laughs> Probably not the most that we've done. No, you know, yeah. certainly not to us. But yeah. let me read this brief section from the Sweet 16 portion of A Book in Every Home. All girls below 16 should be brand new. If a girl below 16 cannot be called brand new anymore, it is not the girl's fault. The mama is to blame. <laughs> it is the mama's duty to supervise the girl to keep those fresh boys away. In case the girl's mama thinks that there is a boy somewhere who needs experience, then she herself could pose as an experimental station for that fresh boy to practice on, and so save the girl. Nothing can hurt her anymore. She has already gone through all the experiences that can be gone through, and so in her case, it would be all right. Okay, well, oh, that's just a, one little slice uh, of that book. It was a different time. It was, yeah, <laughs> but, different well, time. you know, come on. The other two sections are called domestic, and then there's another one called political. Oh, dear. This is not the only book he wrote. He wrote another one called Magnetic Current. Yeah. Were you able to get through that one? I did get through it, <laughs> yeah. but I still don't know what happened. <laughs> right, yeah. I ordered them, uh, I don't know, 10 years ago through the mail. Yeah. And it's like, wow, okay, here we go. We're going to learn the secrets. And then you crack it open. It's like, I, I still don't know the secrets. No. I, don't, I don't know what he's talking about. It's a half step above word salad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Obviously, he did. Or he's alluding to a few things that may have some secrets right. know, hidden in them, but we'll never know. Yeah, and some people have speculated that there's code in oh, yeah, in the course. book, and that's why it's written the way it is. And this is where we're just going to briefly, as we wrap up sort of sharing the legend of the story with you, we're going to briefly mention some of the theories about how Ed was able to do his work. A lot of people seem to think that he had some sort of esoteric, ancient knowledge, or possibly even a mystical power. Well, yeah, if you watch the uh, In Search of clips there, the inter- the little acting bits, he's, there's a lot I'm of- I'm not wi- going to, you can't call that acting, what these people are doing. <laughs> well, there, well, there's a little bit of waving I of I don't hands. remember the reenactments being yeah. so bad when I watched oh, In Search on. of as a well, kid. Well, you know, it depends on how much acting there was to do. But uh, yeah, you'll see shots of him kind of doing the waving of hands, I think kind of suggesting, and what they're getting in it, it is that there is a legend 
that he knew some kind of mystical, magical properties, was able to effuse these himself, or he just knew secrets of levitation. That's one angle. Of course, you know, that's what people think when, when they see something pretty amazing, like, how is this possible that this one little guy who's very sickly did all this himself? Yeah, they thought he had, was a master of anti-gravity. Right. And then there's some folks on the other end of the spectrum. It's like, well, obviously, yeah, he did this, but it was just mechanical leverage, and he just knew those properties very well. There's nothing amazing about it. And one of my favorite theories that we're going to go into a little more depth on in a little bit is uh, the connection to the Earth's magnetic grid. Right, right. Well, which I want to be clear from the outset is pseudoscience, but it is super <laughs> fascinating. Yeah. And, and pseudoscience is fun to talk about. But I think one thing that also garnered a lot of mystery around this guy is that you have to remember, he's very tight-lipped. Of course, everybody that visits, like, well, Ed, how did you, how did you do this? And he, and he would have these little short snippets. He'd kind of smile wryly. Yes. One statement that he would often say that just furthers the mystery and people's you know questioning of of these abilities is he would say, "I know how the pyramids were built." Yes. And so that is also a feat that cannot be duplicated in in modern times here with all of our modern technology. And then you start getting into areas where it's like Gobekli Tepe. How did that happen? Even larger stones than what you find at the pyramids. That's a whole other topic. That's a whole other show in itself. But what is that? Gobekli Tepe. Not yeah. something you just made up. It's a real thing. The spellings might uh, vary by, uh, I guess, whoever's writing it or the different people. But there's been books written about it. And it's been covered a lot in paranormal shows because that's a megalithic mystery. Mm. These things are even more precise, tighter fitting, like Lego pieces. The blocks are on average twice the size of what you find at the Great Pyramid at Giza. Okay. And, Which and, is how big some of Ed's blocks were as well. Yeah, exactly. So that's what's freaking people out because your modern mechanical engineers are marveling at this thing. How did this guy do this? And I want to touch a little bit on the magnetic grid theory, which is, like that's I a, said... That's a big area here of how this may have worked. Yeah, there's this theory about these magnetic vortices that are called vile vortices. That was a, an expression coined by an author named Ivan T. Sanderson. Oh, another fascinating guy. Yeah, yeah, and he's made a map of these points where these vortices are, and one of them, number 18, is real close to where Ed put the Coral Castle. In fact, it's about 60 miles offshore yeah. near the island of Bimini, Oh, which is also home to the Bimini Road. Yeah, and what other famous thing... I don't know what. Bermuda Triangle area? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to, yes. The, are we of not, course. Do I mean jumping ahead? Oh, no, okay. no, no, no. You're right. <laughs> yeah. It's actually on the edge. The point 18 makes up the uh, edge of yes. the Bermuda Triangle. Okay. This is where Ed put the castle. Some people say that he knew that was going to be an area where he could have an easier time controlling gravity. Well, one part of the legend of Ed goes that he kind of traipsed around the United States, not only working in various jobs like uh, mining and, and logging, but that he was looking for the perfect spot. And I can't remember yes. if that's true, that if he told people that. Yeah, he, he did. Was, he, he said, yeah. his, one of his quotes was, if I find it, I'll know it. Right. Well, what that's was... that's what he was saying, because <laughs> yeah. people were like, what are you looking for? Yeah. By the way, I, I want to quote this guy, uh, Bruce Cathy, about the magnetic grid. He was somebody who wrote a great deal about it. He died in uh, 2013. He was an airline pilot, a former airline pilot, who wrote seven books about flying saucers and the world energy grid. One of Bruce's quotes with regard to the grid was, 
At certain positions on the globe, there are localities where the forces of gravity can be manipulated by the application of certain geometric harmonics. Coral Castle, I believe, occupies one of these positions. We already know for certain a little about other areas of gravity abnormality. Many of them exist deep within the oceans. Modern navigational charts show ocean areas where the sea is above sea level, as much as 250 feet or more above normal sea level. Apollo 10 astronauts found abnormal gravity conditions on the moon, causing their frail craft to buck and tumble in totally unpredictable fashion. Where these geometric conditions exist, it is evidently possible for people who have the knowledge to use gravitational forces to construct great buildings of massive material. Stonehenge, the ancient pyramids, the temple at Baalbek, and perhaps the pyramids in Central and South America were the results of a combination of knowledge and gravitational abnormalities. Ah. So that's what Bruce Cathy thought, and he specifically thought that maybe the Coral Castle was built using those principles. Okay, and the, the other idea is that that's maybe why Ed moved it. Right. Okay, so that covers the legend pretty well. Before we drill down on this, let's take a moment for tonight's sponsor, The Great Courses Plus. I think it's pretty obvious that if you listen to our show, you like to learn about things just for the pure pleasure of it. That's exactly right, and that's why we're excited to tell you about the Great Courses Plus video learning service, where you get unlimited access to thousands of the Great Courses online lectures on so many topics, including history, science, and even photography. I'm actually still watching Forensic History, Crimes, Frauds, and Scandals, which is taught by forensic pathologist Professor Elizabeth Murray. Oh, yeah. Well, did you find anything cool? Yeah, I'm on the one about the Black Dahlia murder. Oh, yeah. That one's kept people obsessed with it ever since. Just ask James Elroy. You know how the LAPD found out who the victim was? No, how? Tell me. They couldn't get her fingerprints to the FBI in D.C. because of the weather causing flight delays. So the editor of the L.A. Herald Examiner decided to use a cutting-edge newspaper technology for 1947, a sound photo machine, which was an early way of sending images using telegraph. Hmm. The prints revealed the victim was 22-year-old Elizabeth Short, who worked as a civilian on an army base, so her prints were on file. And that was the first time evidence transfer of that type had been tried. How cool is that? That's pretty cool. Well, we love cutting-edge technology around here, and we really want you guys to try The Great Courses Plus. So they're giving you a special chance to watch hundreds of their courses for free, including forensic history, crimes, frauds, and scandals. We know you'll love The Great Courses Plus as much as we do, so sign up today, and as one of our podcast listeners, you'll immediately get one month free to start watching as many lectures as you want. And be sure to check out Forensic History, Crimes, Frauds, and Scandals. Start your free trial today. Sign up now at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash legends. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash legends. Check it out. Okay, let's get back to the show. All right, so as we said before, this story has been covered a million times. A lot of people have been talking about it for a long time. I find that most of the stories are about Ed after he got to Florida. There's only two things you really know about this. You know about the man a little bit, even though he was kind of an enigma and a hermit. He was very friendly and open, and he had friends, uh, local neighbors, the Mosers. Yes. Right. We're going to talk about that. That's the people who, uh, who, who granted him the land that he was on. And the most amazing thing is that he actually did this thing. You can go see it. So it's yeah. not like a legend of a guy like, oh, maybe he moved these blocks around, whatever. He did it. It's standing there. So you have a millions of pounds of evidence. Yeah. 
and the story of the man. And the thing you don't know is how he did it. But you have the two things, and that's all you can kind of like, those are the two roads you can go down. Well, in this story, I feel that the man is the mystery. Ah, yes. And I think it would behoove us to try and find out a little bit more about his background. So we decided that we were going to talk to a good friend of the show who is himself Latvian. He's a podcaster out (laughs) of Latvia. He lives in Latvia now. That is where he's from. Right. And that's where Ed is from. His show is called Eastern Border, and his name is Kristaps Andresen. He is a journalist with a master's degree in Western philosophy from the University of Latvia, where he is currently working on his PhD. Since Ed was one of his countrymen, we thought who better to introduce us to Ed's history before he left for America on March 23rd in 1912. All right, let's go to our interview with Kristaps. Ladies and gentlemen, I would like to welcome to the show Kristaps Andresen. Did I say it right? Well, man, you have practiced. (laughs) Well, of course I have. I've known him a little while now. He's part of the Dark Myths Collective, which, as you guys probably know from listening to the show, we've plugged a few times. It's a a collection of shows that run the gamut from history to shows like us that are dark and mysterious. And Kristaps has his own show on there called The Eastern Border, which is one of our favorites. And the reason it's called that is because why, Kristaps? Well, because I live on the eastern border. I am talking about the history of Eastern Europe and the... It's a people's history of the USSR, basically. So where do you make your home? Riga, Latvia. Riga, Latvia. That's a pretty good ways away. What time is it there right now? 10 a.m. 10 p.m., sorry. 10 10, p.m. Yeah, that makes more sense. 10 p.m. Yeah, 10 p.m. It's noon here, so you're 10 hours ahead of us. That's easy. Uh, You know what the show you just did that I thought was really interesting was the one about... Putin possibly having been replaced by a double. I thought that was an amazing show. That's not what I do commonly. Commonly, I just do history stuff, like documented evidence, everything. But it was my anniversary show, so I went to do something crazy for it. And as it started out as a joke, but then it got more and more serious as I dug into this. And then it got really serious. And now I'm actually convinced that Putin is dead. Oh, my God. That show got me banned from Russia. I got blacklisted. And I'm being monitored in line, too. So you can't go to Russia now? Not anymore. Oh, even though I live 20 kilometers away from them. Wow. So they're they're probably listening. Oh, yeah. If you have anything you want to say to the Russian government, to this one, office, one guy who's just sitting somewhere there in the room and listening to the show, go on, Scott. It's, it's fine. I love you guys. I hope the weather is nice today. <laughs> Please do not kill us. Yes. Please. <laughs> Oh, man, I'm, I'm, I'm a huge fan of your show, Scott, thank and you. thank you for having me here. Absolutely. So there's a reason that we contacted you. Tonight's show is about one of your native countrymen, and you had said that you might be able to offer a little insight on, on him. So why don't you tell our listeners what your profession is? I'm a journalist. Yes, that puts you ahead of us professionally. We are not journalists. We are pretend journalists. You're an actual journalist. I, I, don't, I don't really think so. I mean... Uh... You cover way more audience with, with Astonishing Legends than I did with my show. Yeah, well, you have training, though, and we don't, which uh, <laughs> our listeners like to remind yeah, us. I do. But... <laughs> All right, so let's talk about Ed Lee Skalman, who built the Coral oh, Castle. Oh, the old anarchist. Yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what can you tell us about Ed? He was a son of a bitch. Really? Go ahead. It's all right. Smoke him if you got him. <laughs> <laughs> I live like kind of nearby to where he was living. Ed, Edward Liskalnich, or his surname means the little song hill, by the way. He's famous for the Coral Castle, really. But at the same time, 
All of his family and everyone he knew participated into the struggles of the 1905 revolution in Latvia. Because before the Bolshevik revolution, there was another one, failed one, in 1905. That's when the local soldiers and workers kind of rebelled against uh, the Tsar. Which Tsar is this? Nicholas II, of okay, course. Nicholas the same II. one. Okay. So they participated in a huge revolution against him. Okay. And it failed, and it was very, very, very hugely oppressed. Like, a lot of people were shot. We have a monument to that one. The Soviets respected the revolution. It's not very well known, but it's an important one. And so Ed participated in this? So Edward uh, was involved in this revolution, and all of his family was as, was involved as well. Basically, he came from um, Latvia, around Vidzeme, which is a region here, from a place called Stamerien. He was the fifth son in the family. He was born in the January 12th, 1887. Other sources now state that he was born in August, but January seems more likely. All of his family were craftsmen. They were carpenters uh, doing things like this, carpentry, architecture, all that stuff. This guy, he studied a bit of becoming a sculptor, but he was spending most of his time just doing all this carpentry stuff and being a revolutionary. He joined the Latvian Social Democratic Workers' Party on 1904, and in the 1905 revolution, with all of his family, he just spent time fighting the police and the officers and the army. And one of his brothers were shot in this revolution. And he took a major part in this. And the revolution kind of formed the guy, actually. Uh, another his brother, by the way, Rudolf, died in an accident, and that made Ed a staunch atheist. Oh, really? Yeah. What kind of accident? Just a carpentry accident. He just fell down and died. Oh, geez. Fell down from, from uh, I don't know how you call it. The, the, the things which you put next to buildings. To <laughs> Scaffolding. <and> stuff. <laughs> Scaffolding. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm, it's okay. <clears throat> I am not an expert on your capitalist language. Uh, I'm it's, sorry. <laughs> it's part of your charm. I love that you dial up the accent when you get confused. <laughs> this is just what I do. I yeah. mean, uh, yeah. but Ed was born to a family of revolutionaries. He participated in the destruction of a spirits factory in Stamerina, by the way, in the 1905 revolution. Like alcohol? Yeah. Yeah, okay. They had this huge booze joint owned by the local baron, and he shot a bunch of cops, then firebombed it. Oh, geez. So he was part of that. And he also, and uh, just to recap, his brother fell off some scaffolding and died, and he decided there was no God after that. Yeah, and he became a stone atheist, and all of his family were just carpenters. Okay. He had a four-grade education in school. But you know what? The local baron, whose property he just firebombed and whom he shot personally, was a huge fan of him, and so he taught him the sculpture thing. Wait, I'm sorry. You're, you're telling me that Ed personally assassinated the baron? Yeah. That's a known fact? Yep. And on top of that, the baron had been a mentor to him in terms of sculpture. Yep. That's fascinating. I can't believe that. Do you have sources to verify that? I do, but they're in Latvian. <laughs> no, seriously, if, no. if your listeners complain, just give them my email and I will do my best to translate them. But yeah. uh, No, 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 I believe you. I believe you. I just, I just want... I'm reading from a book called uh, Koralpils, which is Coral Castle, just in English. And I've also, I'm living very nearby to where Ed was born, just... 40 kilometers away. So I visited the, that museum dedicated to Ed. You went? 
I went there. Yeah, I don't have a car, but I, I took a bus ride. Didn't allow me to take any photos, but I went there. I read through the documents, and I read, and they had all this all this collection of the people who lived next to him, what they had said about him, and a bunch of documents about this revolution. So yeah, he's an assassin. Right. So is that the only person he killed, to our knowledge? A bunch of cops too. Wow. So this paints a whole different picture. He, he used to like he he used to walk around with a rifle around him at all times because he was just prepared to shoot cops because he was a complete anarchist. What kind of rifle was it? I think it was Lee Enfield. Okay. Really. I have seen some pictures, but it's one of those bolt-action rifles. Right. You know? So how does that work? How does a revolution that doesn't work, what happens? There's just a lot of killing and then oh, things okay. go back all to the his, way they were? Well, three brothers of his were killed. All of his family was killed. Uh, okay. You know, the usual desirist people oppressed it. Right. And then he kind of got involved with Latvian paganists. Oh, really? The traditional legend goes that about his sweet 16, that her name is Agnes Scuff, who had rejected him. But that's not true. He really was engaged to, according to documents, which I checked personally, in Vatsgulben, there was no marriage between Agnes and Ed. There was an arranged marriage between Ed and Hermine in the papers, but it never happened. It was just, they just arranged it, but it never happened. And this Hermine loses. She was just two years younger than Ed at this time not 16 or 17, about 25. Okay. And she was the cousin of Ernest Brastinch, the Latvian religious leader. Okay. Mr. Brastinch was known for his neo-paganistic movement, Dievturiba, which means the harmony with God. It's a revival of old Latvian pagan beliefs. It's fully made up and it still kind of lives up today, but actually it has less to do with paganism than ever. But essentially, he got involved with this pagan movement, this serious pagan movement at the time. But he was turned away because this Ernest Brastinch demanded Ed to ask 2,000 rubles so that he could marry his cousin. Yeah, A dowry. A dowry it? of 2,000 rubles is a lot because three rubles buys you a cow. So this was a lot of money. It's a lot of money. It's about $300,000. Wow. Okay. So what did Ed do? Ed decided to do what's best, stick it up to the man. So he goes to England, joins Peter the Painter with his, all of his carpentry training and everything, and joins his anarchistic movement there. Because Peter the Painter is a very famous anarchist in UK. He's the reason why the British cops have guns. Okay. Because there was a standoff between them. And he used to earn his money by robbing stores, by drilling holes in the walls of the stores where there were the weak spots, and just dropping them dry. And Ed helped him with this. Ed was a murderer, anarchist, firebomber, and a professional robber before he decided to move all this, all this stuff. Oh, thank you. And thank you for cleaning Latvian. that word up. Yeah. <laughs> this is some deep background on Ed. So he did all this stuff, and then he eventually bailed to the U.S. What, Ed, do we know what year he came to the U.S.? I know he moved to the U.K. in 1910, he moved to the U.S. in 1912, just after the Sydney Street Siege. Him and his buddies were, like, locked up in this building with actually welded plate mail. And the British cops didn't have guns, so they got guns, and there was, like, a 24-hour shootout. Wow. So we're going to have to put links to all these events and Peter the Painter. We're going to have to—this is really fascinating stuff. So how is Ed perceived nowadays in Latvia? You know what? He's kind of a national hero. Okay. <laughs> we have another guy like him. We have this, uh, by the way, you should do a show on him, Alexander Slime. 
the guy explored Venezuela and Amazonas, and he ran away from this 1905 revolution, another anarchist. But he's the reason why a bunch of Amazona rivers are named in Latvian names. And that guy, yeah, he died with a tin can of $20,000 buried beneath him. He told everyone he had communication with the aliens. Wow. Okay. Well, see, we are, we are a small nation. We love our guys who just do things, make us in the newspapers. Rebels. Rebels. We, we are a bunch of rebels. I'm a rebel for Latvian standards. I mean, holy shit, you guys. I have been blacklisted by a country. A country hates me. My big neighbor, Russia, hates me for just doing a podcast. <laughs> well, be careful. We don't want anything to happen to you. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, so is there anything else that you'd like to say about Ed? Not about Ed specifically, but Ed was an anarchist. He was a crazy person, but about his paganism. Yes. The Ed has been famous for his magnetic things, right? Yes, his, he was obsessed with magnetic. Yeah, but the thing is, I, I have read about this fact, and you know what? He actually met Nikola Tesla. He did? He did. According to eyewitnesses, okay? They're not very reliable. I wouldn't trust on them. But he has met Nikola Tesla in 1913. After he came to the States. Yes. And the thing is, about his magnetism and his, like, he had a theory about world lines of magnetism and everything and about ancient knowledge. Yes, we're going to talk about that. In Latvia, those things are taken very seriously. Okay. Because uh, ley lines and the ley line cross spots, and it has nothing to do with ancient, ancient aliens. It's just magnetic field and where the underground rivers go. Those are still used today to determine whether you should, like, for example, dig your well, or if you want to have some medicinal herbs grow. Are you uh, you're talking about dowsing, right? Yeah, that's one. That's connected. Dowsing is really important because you can either hire very expensive equipment to tell you whether you should dig your well, or you just hire a dowser. So my dad hired a dowser, and uh, wow, his well works perfectly. Wow. My late grandmother, she was a doctor. She was a surgeon for 60 years in the Soviet Union. And in Latvia, there's this belief that you don't put your bed over a ley line or you'll get cancer. And she believed in that. And not only did she believe in that, she also had lead sheets below her bed because she couldn't move her bed so that ley lines wouldn't affect her. Wow. Ley lines as such and dowsing and all this stuff. Yeah, that's, that's the paganistic magic. She's passed away, right? Yeah, she's passed away. So and, I'm presuming um, she did not die of cancer. No, she does really... Really peacefully, though. But that was also a bit of a miracle because uh, I was in Lutz and she was in Riga and uh, I managed to call Alice to visit her in the hospital. So I managed to have my final final talk with her on the phone just 15 minutes before she died. Oh, right. Right. And that was that was amazing. That's wonderful. For our listeners, Alice is Kristaps' fiancé and also the editor of his show. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my. Well, the important part is here is that these ley lines... And also what Tesla would call the magnetic network, the world power network, those are taken seriously here. So if you kind of consider that, Ed was a staunch atheist. He didn't believe in any magic or any, anything supernatural. But I think he might have believed in that he had unlocked some knowledge known before to the ancient Latvians that he used in this construction of the castle. Because ley lines and all of this magneticism is important in Latvian paganism. And he was involved in this with his own Sweet 16, as you call it, Hermine. So that might have played a big impact on his life, I think. I think that even, even if he didn't do anything supernatural, because whatever Ed did, he didn't think of it as supernatural. He just thought of it as 
doing something which is scientific, but just not known to modern science. And he also claimed to have like cured his tuberculosis yes. with this. Yes, which he did after his diagnosis. He lived Yeah, and you know years. what? That is how the local, you know, we have these healer people here, pseudoscience people dismiss them. But if you have incurable cancer and you don't know where to go, you go to the local still paganistic healer guys and they take you to special places. And you know what? It helps some people. All right. The thing is that uh, this is taken kind of seriously, and if you think about it, you should really think about Ed in the categories of maybe uncovering some some secrets of the past, which we just don't know yet how to abuse or use. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for making yourself available. We really appreciate and it. If you have any questions, please uh, let me know, because technically <clears throat> there are reports of uh, Ed also being involved in the Pancho Villa uprising in Mexico, because, you know, he was an anarchist. Oh, wow. Oh, that's fascinating. We'll have to look into that. Thank you again. We'd like to remind everybody to check out The Eastern Border. It's a great podcast. If you haven't heard it, you should check it out. Subscribe. Christops does a very fascinating show. It's consistently interesting. All right, man. This is the the American man is just trying to make me look nice. (laughs) But it was really nice to be here, man. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It was great to have you. Yeah, man. Have a great day. All right. Take care. See ya. Bye. Well, that was a fun interview. <laughs> that was enlightening. <laughs> Some interesting tidbits about a very mild-mannered man who yeah. was very friendly. But you know what? Maybe it's that whole scenario where the soldier leaves his uh, his past life, you know, to lead a quieter life, and all this crazy stuff happens. And then you know, it's like it's the action movie. Yeah, you know, he's a very quiet man, and then he kicks a bunch of ass in town. Yeah, history <laughs> history of violence. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was getting at. Yeah. I couldn't remember the name. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. you know, Christops does a great amount of research, and he's a professional. He's a journalistic professional. Yeah, but it's it's crazy sounding. Yeah, but, but assassinating then again, the Baron, well, who was his friend. Boy, that's the classic. Uh, you just hit on a very, uh, very typical. Uh, well, yeah. the, before that, the two pillars, the widow's son, mm. the start of Freemasonry. Mm-hmm. Yes, the uh, the master builder and the apprentice. I want to talk about Ed's brother. Yeah. He had lots of brothers, right? But I can't remember how many total. Five? I can't remember. But yeah. um, his brother Rudolph is the one that fell and died. And yeah. something that Kristaps didn't mention. I decided to dig in on that a little bit. Yeah, and I found that. Rudolph was working on a church in Russia, and the church was a German Mennonite church. Mm -hmm. Not super big, not super grandiose. I actually found a picture of it. Oh, really? Supposedly, it's in a town called Numara, and it's still standing and it's being used as a government building now. And I found an old picture of it, not a current picture. It was very difficult. However... The fact that Rudolph was building a church when he fell off the scaffolding and died, I think might have contributed to Ed's atheistic outlook because yeah. he was building a church when right. it happened. Yeah, well. You know, I don't have any knowledge of that, but I thought right. maybe there's more to it than just he fell and died and then he was an atheist. That's the connection. Yeah, maybe it's because he was building a, a monument to God when right. it happened. Christops mentioned something that was very interesting and I had not heard too much about previously, the pagan aspect of yes. it. Because if you look at the rock garden and the symbology, like and I Stonehenge. said earlier. Yes. Exactly. Stonehenge. Pagans. The People po- against goodness and nicety. That's my <laughs> the, favorite uh, joke from a, uh, a Dragnet movie. Dra- oh, Dan Aykroyd. Yeah. Right? If you look at the Polaris telescope, the alignment, looking at the stars, there's a huge 
astronomy, stars, universe yeah. theme to his rock garden. Yeah. And um, yeah. that makes sense. I mean, it's kind of like it kind of ties in. It was very much a celestial kind of theme to the whole thing. Yeah. And Ed, when he was in his home country, he was a younger man. And, and yeah. you know, when you're young, you do crazy stuff like kill barons and <laughs> shoot cops. the uh, shoot your mentor uh, sculpting <laughs> yes. baron. But that's where he learned his sculpting techniques, right? His craftsmanship. Yes. Is that he he was an apprentice to somebody. Well, the Baron apparently showed him or yeah. taught him how to sculpt. And then he messed with him. But he also it. had learned the craft of masonry, which is yes. something that we hadn't really mentioned up until now, which is obviously an exalted and ancient craft with many bits of secret knowledge intertwined in it, especially that knowledge that they had, that the Masons had in the early days that allowed them to build was guarded yeah. very much. And it, there's never been an illusion that Ed was a Mason- as part of the Masonic, no, right? You know, right. right. But there is a an idea that when you have exceptional skills, especially in construction, yeah. you keep those skills to yourself because that's your livelihood. You're part of a guild, yeah. so you and there's steps, there's levels. You apprentice, you become a junior builder, senior builder. You know, it's like it's it's like with everything else, master builder, like the Lego movie. <laughs> that's what they're referencing. Yeah, it's like the Freemasons, which is it's you know it's symbolic. Yes, it started off, of course, with stone builders. You look at all of their symbology now. I, mem- I remember my great-grandfather at his funeral, he was a mason and a couple, a bunch of old guys showed up and they had the aprons on, like if, like what you would wear if you were a stone mason. Right. That's an interesting point. Ed had to learn some of these skills somewhere, but he also had a lot of natural ability. As he would say himself, it's easy to do if you know the secret, which is kind of, a, yeah. I mean, that's a much, not much of a saying. Of course, it's easy if you know the secret to it. Yes. But that's, you know, people would ask him, like, how are you able to do this? It's like, well, if you know how, it's easy. So it's kind of a roundabout thing that leaves you nowhere, which is everything that he said. You were kind of left still scratching your head. Yeah. And here's the other thing about Ed. The one thing that we do know for sure, even if we can't say for certain how he built the Coral Castle and then took it apart and then built it again. Yeah. He had a tremendous amount of willpower. And people said that he didn't really care about time. He, so when no. he said he had this big project, like, of moving it, he yeah. would say, well, it'll take me a while, but <laughs> yeah. I'll just do it until I'm done. There's no sense of it. Earlier, we mentioned that, you know, he would trade vegetables, and that's how he ate. And not a lot, because eventually, towards the end of his life, the doctors that examined him noticed that he was malnourished. But he had no day job, right? What did he do for money? He gave tours. 10 cents a pop? And yeah. <laughs> over, yeah. Well, maybe over 28 years. Well, he said but before, when he was saying it was Ed's place, before he even renamed it Rock yeah. Gate, he would tell people that over fifteen or 16,000 people had visited it. And he also oh, sold his okay. pamphlets. That's true. And one of the things about a book in every home was that right. every other page was blank. And he had said that was ostensibly so you could make notes. <laughs> yeah. But some people think it yeah. was just so he could make the book look fatter than it was. <laughs> <laughs> I used, yeah, well, there's, I would there's do, an aspect yeah. of him that feels a little P.T. Barnum. I, I will course, say that. Yeah. Just, you know, but he's, he's not gouging people. That's what I love. No, it's like, you know, he's 10 working cents, for his money. Yeah, yeah, 10 cents would be a few bucks nowadays, but uh, he wasn't gouging people. And that was what they said, was that he was very generous. If you were down on your luck, you were just curious, he'd let you in for free. Uh, he got a lot of people showing up and they were goofing around and trampling his, his shrubberies, his hedges, yes. his hedges and whatnot. And he got kind of sick of that. So it's like, you know what? I'm upping the cost and I'm not going to give so many personal tours because if you showed up, he would just come out and, and give you the tour no matter yeah. when it was. So he's very open, but it's interesting in that he's that open and 
and welcoming, but also, on the other hand, very closed and tight-lipped. Yeah, and apparently he had this whole past life. I mean, well, even he if, did something before he Even came if here. there were yeah. some details of his life in Latvia that you just are like, even if you take away some of them, you say, well, I don't know if he did that. Any one of them is startling, you know, being yeah. part of a revolution, you know, the death of family members, all of that stuff. Sure. There's a lot to it. Now, one of the things that's interesting about this case, and it's like any other case, and we've talked about this on a lot of episodes, is there's a lot of people who have it figured out. Everyone has solved it. Everyone's made a video. Yep, if you yep. see the word solved, you've got to know that there's a high chance that it's not accurate. Now, I, I watched a bunch. There's the yeah. My wife has a term for people that seem to be know-it-alls, and she calls them key janglers. And well, I, there's I, a lot of key janglers now that's making the, videos about yeah, the Coral Castle and right. about this is how he did it. This is how it was built. Yeah. None of them have actually built coral castles that I know of. There is a man that I do want to talk about who's very important to this discussion, sure. which is uh, Wallace Wallington. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Wally. <laughs> Wally Wallington. I don't know if his yeah. friends call him Wally Wally. I or... think so where you got it. Yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah. I watched another video with a guy who's like down there and he's more of a skeptical point of view and he's – there's nothing wrong with skepticism. Right, but right. he's just like, well, he just quarried it with these chains with teeth on them. The, oh, as, as a cutting as Yeah, a cutting as a cutting device. tool. And it's right. like – that's his whole theory, and it's actually coming from one of the tour guides at the park. Who oh. I, I don't know if he's still a tour guide there, but the tour guide is saying he quarried him with these chains with teeth. And it's like, well, if he did that, where are the marks? The stones right, aren't right, scored. Right. You need a machine to do that. Well, yeah. If you're one man, unless yeah. you got two people and you're doing it, you know, old-fashioned long But the guy song. just says it real matter-of-fact, and he's saying, that's what happened. And I'm sorry, I'm just not buying it. Now, you sent me another video that a guy did, and, we, yeah. and we'll share that link. Mr. Russell, maybe? Yeah. Yeah. It's about 30 minutes. He actually did build a yeah. lot of the contraptions that Ed had, and uh, including the tripods, as well as the electric motor thing, which we're going to talk about in a little bit. Ed called his perpetual motion machine. He built all of that and was able to show how that might possibly have been used to mechanically quarry stone by sawing it. And his mm -hmm. implication was the hardest part of Ed's work was done by machines and that's why he had the engine and electrical power running, and it was actually cutting stone. Mm -hmm. Then he was able to move it fairly easily using principles of balance and leverage, leverage, yeah. and, and we'll talk about that more. And that's where Wally Wallington comes in. Oh. And that stuff is kind of convincing. But before we go down that road, let's come back to when Ed came to America after he got done with all the killing in Latvia. <laughs> <laughs> the assassinating and the... Anarchism. He came to America in 1912. Now, according to Kristaps, not too long after that, 1913, I think, he yeah. met with Tesla. Now, here's the interesting thing about that. Kristaps said that this is what eyewitnesses said, and we all know eyewitness testimony can be weak. However, he did immigrate into the port at New York, and I'm pretty sure in 1912 Tesla was living in New York. It's entirely possible that he might have crossed paths with him. He might have sought him out, giving his clearly natural curiosity for magnetic current and electricity and it might not have been too hard to actually get an audience with him at that time. People were very much more approachable now uh, because you didn't have as many crazy people trying to swim in your swimming pool, put your clothes on, and, and stab you at the end of it. So yeah. if somebody were, were to receive you, it was easier back then to, to get to them. By way of fact-checking, I want to be clear. I am not positive that he lived in New York at that time, yeah. but I know that he lived in New York a great deal. 
And in fact, my first apartment in New York, there was a plaque on the building behind it that said that it was where his original Tesla. Yeah, where, oh, he, wow. where he had either lived or had a lab or something. Right. But we know Ed came through New York, like yes. a lot of immigrants did. And so yes, he there's was records kind of, yeah. that's documented. You can get those records, all that. And yeah, he, I've he seen He sailed the, uh, out of uh, Hamburg, okay, Ger- right, Germany, right. on the SS Pennsylvania. So to, to New York. Same place, same time period. Yes, same place, same time period. However, he did not immediately go down to Florida and start building his 1,100-ton monument. He was looking for work. And one of the first places that he went was to that great spooky corner of North America, (laughs) where some people in this room, not me, might be from the general area. (laughs) Not the corner he was in. The Pacific Northwest. Right. That's a big territory, by the way. Yeah. One of his final destinations, I believe, was uh, Spokane. So Really? Yeah. Well, it's one of the larger cities in the Inland Empire, as they call it. It's very likely that uh, he came through there. But during this time, from what I'd heard from, you know, there wasn't much there at that time either. So like, uh, you know, around uh, the turn of the century, it was like there's a settlement, you know, logging and mining camps down by the river, the Spokane River. Yeah. In a lot of railroads. So you had the railroad coming through. And you, uh, you know, you were on your way to the coast or you did a lot of logging and mining in the area. Same thing with northern Idaho. That's how people made a living back then. Yeah. Uh, What's fascinating about this, a crossover with one of our earlier shows and one of my favorites, the Ostman episode. There's a lot of tie-in. Yeah. Because Ostman was in the region (laughs) at the same time. Yeah. If you haven't heard that story, that's a fun one. He was kidnapped by a a family of Sasquatch. As as he's told it, (laughs) yes. And kept in a box (laughs) canyon. And a sleeping bag for a period of time. <laughs> yes. Which is very stuffy. But there's a lot of parallels between the two guys in that you have somewhat of a hermitish kind of guy, but not antisocial. Yes. Ostman would receive visitors and he'd talk about his story. So there's a lot of there's a lot of different things going on. It was a type of person. They're they're both kind of uh, eccentric in their way. Yes. But hardworking. Mm-hmm. Forthright, but kind of secretive in, in some ways. And Maybe, you know, a little too expressive in others. Well, at least with Ostman's story, but but both immigrants. Yes. Uh, around the same time period as well. And Ed, he may have learned some new stuff if he got involved with logging. He may yeah. have been... Well, he, logging and mining. Logging and mining. All kinds of things about how to move heavy logs, right. trees, whatever, rocks with simple mechanical advantage yeah. and, uh, you know, affordable solutions that engineers were bringing to the field. So it's possible he already had his knowledge of masonry. He already had his knowledge of sculpting. Let's say he did meet with Tesla, for all we know, and he got some new ideas about electricity. May or may not have happened. But then he may have gained additional knowledge in the logging and mining businesses about moving heavy objects with mechanical advantage and leverage and that sort of thing. So stuff that he might not have already known right. that may have helped contribute to his ability to quarry those huge stones. He's learning principles of hard physical labor in these fields, which are the basics. But when you come to a logging crew or a mining crew, it's not one dude. No. It's a team of people working together, all doing specific things. You had made a note earlier that there's no chain marks on these giant slabs. Uh There are no cut marks, really, of, of, of sawing. I mean, it's obviously he cut it, but not in a kind of a, a traditional way. That's one thing that they show in the In, in Search, Search of, of episode. Yes. The producers hire a masonry company. Yes, at a quarry of of similar type of stone yeah. in the area. 
Yeah, to, right. to to get this to basically cut a slab, and again, think about this, folks. It's they a, use a diamond tipped, yeah, like chainsaw. It's like a chainsaw, right? Right. Thing to cut the rock. Think about it. How do you get that thing, out? So you can you thing can, is a technical term. <laughs> you can you make a rectangular cut, but how do you get at the bottom cut? You know, My dad is going to be mad about this one. About rectangles? Well, he's You're, a civil engineer. Oh, the the, well, the amount of things him. I'm flubbing. <laughs> you should have had him on the they show. They use this thing to cut the stuff. <laughs> yeah. Well, look, Well, watch the show because uh, we'll have a, a link to it. They have a lot of trouble with their modern machinery. The, yeah. the crane is tilting forward. Yeah, it almost falls this, over. Yeah, you can see that, you know, a little. it's a little bit for dramatic effect that yeah. they kind of show the, the back uh, track they're lifting up. But they wrap a chain around it and have the shovel part of it lifting the slab up, and there's tons of chain marks. It's yes. not easy to do. It's and they, scraping along the yeah. edge of it. And yeah. Yeah. The operator of the uh, – is it a backhoe, technically? I don't think it's a backhoe. Uh, it was, a, well, it was kind of a digger there. It's a digger, yeah. yeah. It's one of those guys that sits on top of the Caterpillar tracks, and it's big. And right. he said, I wouldn't quarry any piece much larger than the one we just pulled, or, you know, or my crane would tip over, essentially is what he's implying. What he's really saying is the things that Ed did on his own without motorized machinery. He said the word impossible. Yeah. That guy did. <laughs> right. He said it's impossible. He wouldn't try it. Yeah. Right. But Ed did it. So, yeah, you see him using, employing techniques he may have learned in logging and mining, and working with rock and wood. But he doesn't really kind of stick with that business too long. He works well, he out for a, a while. Yeah? Yeah. <laughs> what was that? Tuberculosis. Well, that'll, <laughs> that'll uh, take the steam out of you. He was very, very ill with tuberculosis. Right. And this is what they think drove him to Florida. He thought the climate would help yeah. to be down there. And no one apparently knows how long he was wandering before he wound up no, in Florida. No, it was right, right. But people think it was months. It could have been that that took him out of the work that he was doing in the Pacific Northwest. It's hard to say. But he eventually made his way to Florida City. Right down at the tip. That's a different creative name. Every state has one. There's California City. Right. Not too far from us out in the desert. But I guess he was out on this road. He probably was looking for land. He may have even been dowsing, but he collapsed on the side of the road. And this guy was driving along named Reuben Moser. He was a local land speculator, which was a big business back then, because like we said earlier, a lot of people were moving down to Florida. And Tons of land open was land. Cheap. Yeah. yeah. So he's driving down the road in Florida City, which at the time was a town he had more or less founded. He's not technically a founder, but he extolled the virtues of living there. And because he was a, a real estate agent, yeah. he brought all the people there and it had a decent little population. I think it was something like seven or 800 people yeah. at the time. And he saw... Ed on the side of the road. And he stopped because Moser was a very, very nice guy. And it's yeah. funny when I think about this scenario, it, it reminds me of, we always talk about movies. Yeah. It reminds me of uh, Marty McFly falling out of the tree and getting hit by the car. <laughs> this yeah. guy picks him up. He's like, right. what are you kids doing? No, but yeah. he picks him up, puts him in the car and he takes him home because he's concerned about him. Yeah. Yeah. The good Samaritan. Yeah. yeah. And he finds out when he gets home, they find out if you believe the in search of reenactment <laughs> and right. I use the acting term loosely. They find out that he's very ill. He's suffering yeah. from tuberculosis, coughing, you know, possibly even coughing up blood at that point. Yeah. So they take him into the home and nurse him back to health. He stays yeah. with him for months and months and months. I'd like to add that they had a fairly young daughter. And some people speculated that she was oh, a maybe sweet 16. The, right. That was the uh, inspiration for yeah, him. Yeah. But there's not a whole lot to that. Right. Um, but anyway, they nurse him back to health. He starts looking for land. Moser is obviously the man with the land. The guy has got land. So what's happening now is Ed is going all over town on his rusty old bicycle, and he's apparently dowsing and poking the ground 
with a stick because he is not interested in farmland. If there's soil, he doesn't want it. He <laughs> seems to be devoted to yeah. finding the worst land you could possibly find. Well, that's not his main point. Yeah. The main point is he's looking for something that doesn't make sense to the local folks there. Right. They think that possibly he's got a treasure map. He's looking for treasure because he's got sticks, he's poking, yes. he's turning things over, but he's not finding what he's apparently looking for. And when he does, Mr. Moser is like, what do you want with this? This is pretty terrible land. You can't farm on it. Yeah. But that's not what he wants. He, no. And for some reason, he he, he wants that spot. Right. And like he said previously, I'll know when I find it. And so he, he bought this two-acre parcel, which I think Moser already had. Or maybe Moser bought for him and sold to him. Yeah. I can't remember the amount, but it was super cheap. It was either $100 or $10 or something. It wasn't very much at all. Right. Because Moser was like this land. Nobody would yeah, want this anyway. Yeah. Ed moves out there, proceeds to start working. Before too long, word gets out that he's up to something unusual. And he starts quarrying and building what would become Ed's place first and then yeah. later Rockgate. So that was the first iteration of it. He claimed that... Using his knowledge of magnetic current and magnetism in general, that he cured himself yeah, of tuberculosis. Right. He got more strength in him somehow. He did, and he lived for many more decades when he was theoretically pretty much about to die. Yeah. There's something going on there. It's a little, <laughs> yeah, you, little unusual. And well, then on top of that, he's, he's yeah. building this single-handedly, building this you know ridiculously complex and heavy structure. Right. After it's been there a while, has a fair amount of visitors, people are coming there, he decides it's time to move it. And we, we alluded to this earlier, it's now it's, uh, I think, 1938, he decides to move it. Yeah, I think so. He's got that inscribed on the, uh, on on the, the stone. On the stone. Yeah. yeah. The and entrance. the question is, why did he move it? And that all comes down to, why did he build it? Or how did he build it? Mm -hmm. He'll tell you, in its first location, that he built it for his Sweet 16, which we've already talked about. How he built it is another question. How? Did he build it? Did he simply use mechanical advantage and methods that he had learned through his travels to construct something so ridiculously complex, even though he was only 125 pounds and sickly and, you know, seemingly not a very strong person? Was he using harmonic levitation? Was he using the Earth's magnetic grid? Was he dowsing, looking for the perfect place where he could take advantage of anti-gravity principles? Did he know things that we did not know? Which is what Kristaps said. He yeah. said, you know, he, he was exposed to paganism in Latvia. He was exposed to all kinds of, it's possible that he had this esoteric knowledge. Now, it occurs to me also that he is very exalted in Latvia and that he has become somewhat of a legendary figure. Well, as he said, he's kind of a local hero there. Yeah. yeah. So there's probably a lot to be said for the reality of who Ed was and what he's become in hindsight. And that can probably also be said of the Coral Castle and its presence in the United States. The story itself has taken on a life of its own, and people seem to be more and more fascinated with trying to figure out how he managed to get it together. Now, there are people that speculate that the reason he moved it was because he made a miscalculation when he first built it. There's another story that he was assaulted by a gang of rough kids who <laughs> yeah, like beat him up. Right. Uh, another piece of tremendous reenactment quality <laughs> and <laughs> well, in search of. Yeah. It's, it's uh, the they, East End boys. Yeah. yeah they kind of like pushing him around. <laughs> yeah. They roughed him up and took whatever little bit of money he had. 
and he moved for security reasons. There was a rumor that he had heard that a development was going in, but to this day, the area is still not very much developed. No, but that was, I think that's the main theory. He'd heard there was going to be more development, so he decided to scoot on up 10 miles up the interstate. Well, there's another theory. Nobody was really coming to Florida City. Oh, Homes- to, visit, to visit Yeah, his place? Yeah. yeah. Homestead was right off US-1, the main right. route to the Keys. Yeah. If he got up there, which is where it is right now, still right off US-1, it's sitting on the side of the road by one of the greatest road trips in the country. Mm-hmm. It could be that he just wanted more business. He thought he'd make a better living. Yeah, I guess. I mean, how much business is it? It's not like he's Universal Orlando. He's making 10 cents a pop here, which puts him probably in, in some Well, I'll tell you what. When he, when he died, now. they found $3,500. Oh, 3800 Yeah, 38 yeah. and is hidden up in his little Yeah, which is lair. a substantial sum at that time, yeah. but it's not so, like it's a hundred grand. He had some money squirreled away. He was very frugal. He didn't spend any you know money on anything, probably except for tools that you see. But the other theory that I like better just because it's more interesting, if you go down this whole earth grid, magnetic grid of the uh, of the earth and these hot spots and vortices, you start getting into ideas like geomagnetic reversal, which the earth's magnetic poles have shifted yes. over its lifetime. I think the average spans are either like 0.1 and a million years in apart, and I think the average is about 450,000 years. The North Pole becomes the South Pole, folks. And because you have to realize in the Earth's internal processes is a lot of molten metals convection. That's what I learned in my Geo 101 class in college. You look at the uh, tectonic plates under the ocean and rocks are magnetized as they come out of uh, molten lava. So as these rifts grow apart, they start to see that the magnetism within these rocks, the polarity has changed. You can calculate how fast these things are moving apart well, there are bands. So there's a band of positively, there's a band where they're charged negatively. So you can kind of gauge this. It's kind of a uh, rings of the trees aging process here. So that's a real thing. He sensed or I guess his work got harder. He realized, well, I think the, I think the grid here, the focal point has changed. I got to move all this stuff yeah. because that's a huge amount of work Yeah, for one little guy yeah. in a flatbed truck. Yeah. And by the way, I wanted to make clear, as anyone might know, there's no way you can put a 30-ton rock on a flatbed truck, which I mentioned earlier. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. He actually built a trailer himself for the larger, heavier stones, and he hired a guy with a tractor, and the trailer had solid rubber tires. Yeah, you need those, right. So what he would do is he would have the trailer dropped off, and he would put the stones on it, and to the point about the, oh, go around the corner, and then a rock was magically (laughs) on there. He would, according to this book, which we've got a lot of information from tonight, I want to mention this book. It's a really great book. It's called uh, Coral Castle, The Mystery of Ed Leeds Skalnan and His American Stonehenge. It's written by Jack Heffron and Rusty McClure. came out in nine, uh, September of 2009. It's also available on Kindle, and mm-hmm. uh, it's, a, it's a really good read. I really like the way it was written. In fact, the approach is similar to how we approach things, I think. But, oh, excellent. Um, which drives some people crazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they don't <laughs> no, really it's a good appreciate book. our manner. But, but I'm not yeah. saying we could write a good book, but these guys yeah. these guys really did. And it, is it tells really you the whole story. Yeah, right. it tells you the whole story. But my what I wanted to say was, 
according to the guys in the book who they interviewed people or found it, there were a lot of affidavits that were rounded up by some yeah. of the other investigators. There's like 300 affidavits of witnesses. Interviewing, yeah, yeah. people had seen stuff. Yeah. yeah, and people, some people would say they saw mystical stuff. Other people say that it was more mundane. Right. But a lot of people saw a lot of things. One thing that was pointed out about this trailer that would carry like the 30-ton stone, for example, is it would be dropped off on a Friday. Yeah. And Ed would say, come back Tuesday. Still pretty amazing. <laughs> He's, well, he's, he's going to be alone. Yeah, he's inching He's going to move there. a 30-ton stone onto yeah. this trailer that he built, and that he tractor some, He put some it. socks under it. You right, know, to right. Slide it. The other classic affidavit, I guess, is from these three teenage boys who decided to spy on him. The other part of the mystery is that he only worked at night. And, yeah. And, you know, never during the day, never while anyone was watching. As we stated earlier, he was very polite. He would just stop working. So a couple of these uh, local boys here, I think, kind of peeked in at his garden in, at night just to see what what is up. And they claim to have seen these large slabs of stone floating through the air like hydrogen balloons. Yeah. So that is a, a, a great mystical thing. It's not magic, again, where <laughs> I'm not on the magical waving of the hands over it and it just levitates. It was some kind of process. I believe he was using something to get these you know, multi-ton slabs of stone to kind of levitate through the air, and that's how he positioned them. Well, you know, from that same book that I just mentioned, uh, there's a quote about that. It says, according to some, the phenomenon those Florida teens witnessed is known as harmonic levitation, a process in which a certain sound pitch allegedly nullifies the gravitational pull on an object, allowing it to float in the air. The process sometimes is attributed to Tibetan monks who are said to have mastered the art and allegedly used it to float large rocks in the air and then move them to higher places. One of the better-known case studies is reported by Swedish writer Henry Kjelsen Kjelsen, in his essay, The Lost Techniques. Kjelsen writes about the experience of his friend identified as Dr. Jarl, who lived for a short time more with a group of Tibetan priests. Jarl testified that he witnessed chanting while beating on drums tuned to various pitches. After several minutes, the sounds caused rocks to lift into the air. The parascientific explanation of harmonic levitation is pretty simple. The condensed vibrations within a sound that achieves a certain pitch nullify the gravitational pull on an object, allowing it to break free and rise into the air above the surface on which it had rested. To achieve the levitation, the sound must achieve a certain frequency with a specific distance from the object. In a documentary posted on YouTube, longtime Coral Castle guide Ray Ramirez speculates that the partially enclosed Redemption Corner, which we need to talk about, by the way, mm-hmm. at the castle may have been where Ed stood to hear and judge the frequencies he generated to cause the huge stones to lift into the air. Others have theorized that the black box located at the top of the tall tripod from which Ed rigged the block and tackle used in constructing the castle may have contained frequency tuners that produced the tonal pitch necessary to reduce or eliminate gravitational pull, thus allowing Ed to lift the rocks and move them with equipment that otherwise would not be capable of the task. And again, that's from Coral Castle, The Mystery of Ed Leedskalnen and His American Stonehenge by Jack Heffron and Rusty McClure. Now, this is something I want to say about this that's really interesting to me, and that's something that we didn't mention. In all the pictures of the wooden tripods, there are boxes at the top of them that everyone has just freaked out about for years because nobody knows what's in these weird boxes. Additionally, the tripods are in no way strong enough to hold the weight of most of the stones quarried at the Coral Castle. 
They can handle the smaller ones, but not the big ones. No, they're kind of like the uh, diameter of like thin telephone poles, you yeah. know, which is not going to hold a multi-ton block of it, stone. It, it just doesn't, it doesn't add up. The video you sent me, who was the gentleman? Russell something? Uh, His last name is Russell, yeah. Russell, is that who, who was the guy that he built a whole... Well, he built the tripod. He, he shows you how tripod. he shows you how to do it too. Yes, yeah. and he said that the boxes had car batteries in them. Yeah, for power, and that Ed's perpetual motion machine, or what he called it, which is you can see in his tool shop and all the pictures, he's got his hand on the handle to rotate it, was a magnetic machine that would rotate and provide power, that would then in turn activate a solenoid that would take the current from the car batteries and send it out to all the tripods who would then use mechanical advantage to raise heavy objects. Right. I still don't see how those tripods could support the weight of... But the guy is a genius. You're going to... We have a link to that video. It is pretty amazing to see all the stuff that he built and got to work that looks just like the stuff that Ed was using. Now, I read a long time ago, I did not find it in our research here recently, but back when I first got interested in this case, probably 15 or 20 years ago, I had read that tuning forks were found among his materials. But Mm -hmm. I have not seen that lately. Yeah. That would be super interesting to me to find that out because the the idea of the harmonic levitation, and this is something that um, our uh, skeptic on board, uh, Chris, who is a member of the uh, research corps, which by the way, I want to give a shout out to the research corps. They did an amazing amount of research for a quick turnaround on this episode. Yes, every time. I've been uh, super grateful for that. Chris sent us a video, which you can see, we have a link to in the show notes, that shows, I guess, a scientist in a lab with a little small square hooked up to some computer cables. Yeah, he's a grad student. Oh, he's a grad student. Okay. And it has um, little tiny speakers. And using these speakers, he has what the, these little what he calls particles, which are balls a couple of millimeters apart. They're beads, yeah. yeah. They're, they're, it's a, a bead probably in a diameter of two or three millimeters, and it looks like the device is, they're speakers, but they look like rods, like black yes. rods mashed together, So, but they're pointing up. And then, of course, he's got a computer controlled. So, yeah, you'll see this thing kind of floating, hovering in air. Now, it's not that's not such an amazing thing. You can take magnets and get, uh, and get something to hover. To hover. Yeah. But he slips a piece of paper or a bit of foil underneath the levitating bead, and it doesn't affect it. He can pick the the block of uh, these tiny speakers up and and turn it and upside it's, down. Yeah, and it and stays it fall. in place. It's yeah. like there's no gravity for it. Yeah, but it's also being it's like a tractor beam. It's kind yeah. of like it's got it stuck in place. Yeah. The point is that is technically harmonic levitation. That is proof of concept. Now, in, a, in a very tiny spot. Yeah. It's but if in you can its do infancy, it, if you can do it tiny, maybe you can do it big. Yeah. And maybe Ed was doing it big a long time ago. Of course, there were no speakers on site that I know well, of. No, but the, like, the, and no, yeah. But there were rumors of him singing, rumors of him singing <laughs> to the stones, oh, really? rumors of the tuning forks. The yeah. kids are saying there's levitation. There's so many things. And the, by the way, that repentance corner, boy, that's strange. That's like a little room has a slot where like if a kid would misbehave, to your point about people running oh, through the Oh, is that shrubs, what it is? Yeah. <laughs> They would put yeah. their head down like in this slot and they would be trapped almost like they were in a stockade. Ew. And he would sit inside the room and talk sense to them. Wait, this really happened? Supposedly. <laughs> oh, is that part so of the, the tour? So yeah, the Ark had a, bla- a field day with that Oh one. my yeah, goodness. Just, like, yeah, that, this was this little room. There's some control issues going on there. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, well, you know. Look, I don't know. He's an eccentric. It goes, it goes with the territory. Yeah. However, there are some real... Interesting things that go along with this when you start involving sound and harmonics and magnetism, because it's all part of the grand unified theory, I think. 
he passed away off property. Yeah, he we'll, left. We'll talk he about knew that. he was. Yeah, yeah. He, well, he was. We can get to that. In a we'll minute, we'll get yeah. to it in more detail. But he was sick, so he he got on a bus, went to a, a a bigger hospital in Miami, I believe. And then you know when he passed away, people were curious, like, what's he got there? And so you know, a couple of the neighbors went and looked, and and they took. Some, they were also they, guarding it. Yeah, the they way. were also guarding it because yeah. it's an it's guarded intense him. curiosity. Oh, yeah. of course. Yeah, yeah. Well, his legend and lore is right there for everyone to see. Yeah. But what they found was that bit of money, the $3,800 and his tools. And then, you know, but what's the secret machine here they're looking at? And they didn't find much, except there was a box at the apex of the tripod made out of these logs. There was a flywheel machine, which spun in a certain direction and it had magnets around the outer perimeter. By the way, you know how many magnets it originally had? 16. 16. Okay. Now, right, and that I, I was another thing that your guy suggested in yeah. the video you sent me, Mr. Russell, yeah. said that he thought that the Sweet 16 might possibly be an allusion to his machine that he had invented that helped him build the castle. I don't have many conclusion points here, yeah. but, but I want to say it before I forget. The more I've heard about this, I don't think so much that Sweet 16 means his teenage sweetheart Mm-mm. as much. I think it, there might be some tie-ins because he just cryptically said, oh, it's for my Sweet 16 She's going to come back someday. Well, and by the way, here's something I had meant to say earlier yeah. with regard to that. Agnes Scuffs, who he said was his sweet 16, yeah. who jilted him at the altar. Right. There's something about her name that you should know. Her last name is not her, Scuffs. No, no. In Latvian, Agnes means innocent and Scuffs means kiss. Ah, there you go. Innocent kiss. An innocent kiss. It just sounds like a made-up story. I- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And and we also have the other woman, who whose name escapes me. I always want to say Hermione, but who the other? Oh, Hermione, the, yeah. The, the, the Hermine, Christops. Right, yeah, the Christops mentioned, and other people are aware of as well, who he was supposed to marry but couldn't afford the dowry. Yeah, as an arranged marriage. Right. So the more I hear about this, it's like he's very cryptic, but he's dropping clues because you don't put out a pamphlet book to do that when you're trying to give clues. And you, people read that. It's like, well, this makes no sense. So the things that he said, he's alluding to something, and I don't believe, yeah, it's all that cut and dried that he's he had such a broken heart that for the next 28 years, he spent cutting rock, hoping that she's going to come back you know, after being yeah. mar- probably married well, with her and, own family. And in his books, he says, you know, I didn't get the girl, he, and yeah. he said, I've always wanted her. It's kind of sad. He's like, I always wanted a girl, and I never had one. I mean... He's got tuberculosis. It's hard, yeah. It's hard, to, I mean, I think, it's hard to get close to a woman with, with you know, if you have TB. But yeah. he's getting at some interesting real properties that are kind of mysterious that are, are accepted. Yeah. The field of cymatics, which is a, it's kind of an area of modal vibrational phenomena. And you can do this at home, folks. <laughs> you take a piece of uh, a cardboard or any kind of membrane. Like you, you could stretch a piece of cellophane over a speaker. You pour salt or very fine sand or sugar on it. You play a high-pitched tone on the speaker, it will form patterns, like start to form very beautiful patterns. Yes. And the higher the pitch goes, the more complex the patterns happen. The term was coined by Hans Jenny, but these are principles that it's known you can do it. You can do it at home. They're not sure how this happens other than it's just a natural sound phenomenon. So sound has power. Yeah. To levitate. And, you know, Which, as about we the, mentioned earlier, yeah. The walls of Jericho. Look yeah. that up, folks. Yeah. Trumpets, horns, walls coming down. Yeah. The classic story. So anyway, there's things you can do with sound that are provable, but they're on a very small scale. So yeah. what if Ed just knew how to amplify that using the tools that he had? This is always what I found strange. When he passed away, I don't know if he kind of prepared himself because he knew he was getting really sick. He didn't feel well. 
he knew he was going to have to take this bus ride up to the hospital that maybe he hid some stuff because really when you look at it it's a disappointing collection of rusty tools yeah that they found nothing really earth shattering well and this is the other thing and i haven't seen it anywhere else but in the in search of they implied that they found a treasure map yeah <laughs> no one yeah. is mentioning that anywhere no i know i didn't i didn't see that anywhere and else. they walked all around they show people scratch literally yeah. scratching their heads well that's what i would do they sure. walked all around and couldn't figure out what it's like what is that was yeah. there a treasure map where did it go they it didn't seem to correspond to the park well I, every map needs a key yeah and he didn't provide a key to this no and other people have talked about how you know he carved his uh, number these numbers into the doorway over his living quarters, but those were his immigration numbers. It was common practice <laughs> well, because if your papers got lost, you wanted to be able to prove that you oh. were safe in the country. That didn't necessarily mean anything, but other people said, no, that's a secret code. And they, yeah. one guy went so far as to say, is to like break it down and say it's it's a special kind of number. And if you apply all this math to it, it talks about all these secrets. And Ed must have been a genius because he somehow managed to get his immigration numbers to correspond with this formula. <laughs> well, talk about yeah. confirmation bias. Well, I mean, no, but uh, yeah, yeah, you're again, you're hammering that uh, the square peg, yeah, into the round uh, hole in the in the stone slab. What makes sense to me though is that if you want to remember some numbers for something else, it's easy to use numbers you already know by heart. Yeah. If he already knew his immigration numbers by heart, what's a good password? Well, you're you're going to remember that. Yeah. So I don't think it goes, it's backwards compatible, but obviously the numbers meant something and maybe not, well, I don't know. He's in America now. How many people, how many times do you get asked for your papers? And I said something about this earlier, but when I talked about specifically vile vortex number 18, yeah. as, as described. V-I-L-E, by the way. Yeah. Not, as a, not a good one. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, as described by Ivan T. Sanderson, it corresponds with Bimini, and the, you guys should look up the Bimini Road because what Ivan T. Sanderson says is that every vile vortex has some sort of monument near it. Interesting. So ancient these, monuments. Yeah, ancient yeah. monuments. There are scientists who now think the Bimini Road is a natural occurrence, but there are other people who say it isn't, and that they found another layer underneath it that defies the description of it being natural. So just have to look it up. That's a whole other thing. The Bimini Road. It looks like a giant road under the water. People thought it was Atlantis when they found it, which yes. some divers found it in like 1972 or something, right. I think. There's that. The The other thing I wanted to talk about who I, was uh, the guy that I mentioned earlier. This okay with you? We, can we move on to Wally? Yeah, let's go All to right. Wally World. Wallace Wallington, contractor for 30-some years, mm -hmm. uh, older gentleman now, which would explain why he did not want to do an interview. I think he did a lot of groundbreaking work, but it was in the early 2000s. And at this point, you know, he's a grandfather, and I think he's had a, he's done talking about it. He's been on History Channel. He's <laughs> yeah, been on a billion – there's YouTube videos with yeah. like a million views where he is single-handedly moving huge concrete blocks using principles of leverage and simple mechanical advantage to achieve – a lot of the kinds of things that Ed would have done. Now, I want to make something clear. He, In fact, he takes one like heavy rock column that's square, and he's built with wood, this sort of serpent-shaped piece of wood, and then he's able to just simply roll the rock across the wood. Oh, he also uh -huh. has this huge stone column that weighs, I don't know, a ton or more, and he's raising it up by leveraging it. He would lever it up like a seesaw, and while it's up on one angle, he puts a two-by-four under it that's in a frame so it can't fall out. And then he rocks it the other way, 
and puts a two by four under it. And he eventually does this to the point where it's so tall, he can actually stand it up pretty easily. Hmm. He also rotates a 20-ton barn by himself using these principles that he developed. It's pretty fascinating stuff. I emailed him and asked him if we could interview him. He just said maybe some other time. <laughs> well, you got Ronnie'd. <laughs> yeah, I got Ronnie. Speaking <laughs> a, of Ronald. Well, Ronald Johnson, Delphi. again. Yes. Older guys, when you're in your 60s and 70s, you've told the story so a many thousand times. Yeah. times. You don't want to like, tell it anymore. <laughs> like, but yeah. he did say in his email to me that I do believe Ed could have built it alone. He yes. didn't say what that implied, but he goes, I do believe he could have built it alone. Whether he meant mystically or otherwise, or just using some of the methods he came up with. The only thing that I'll note about that is that I don't think there's any history of wooden forms or contraptions that Ed built with wood that's not mentioned a whole lot, aside from the tripods, in terms of no. wood being involved in his process. No. But it's, he was a carpenter, as Christoph said. He had the skills, yes. Yeah. He had yeah. the skills. You just didn't see any evidence of it. There wasn't much wood around his place. It yeah, was all built with stone. if you saw the stuff that Wally was using... Yeah. On site, you would say, oh, he must have done this. The thing that Wally does prove, though, is that it's possible for one man to move yes. monolithic materials on their own. Exactly. And it's and it's really fascinating stuff to watch. We have links to it, and you definitely need to take a look at it all. You always see that in the movies when they're, you know, building the pyramid scene, and they're rolling, they've got logs, and you just, it's really easy. You just put, you take one log, and it's not easy for yeah. for me, but you take one no, log. it's easy for the slaves. It's easy for the, <laughs> yes, the, the 10,000 slaves you have, and, and you put the, the log in the in the front you move the block along it mm-hmm. that's those the, size blocks the point is takes a bunch of people and a and a whip well so, and there's a prevailing theory now and a guy actually built a replica and did this on the moai as well on easter island oh, yeah, saying yes. that they walked them into position yeah with ropes up at the top and they literally just walk them yeah. it still takes 10 people or whatever right but they're walking it to where it needs to go yeah so it's interesting all that stuff is is interesting Ed was not seen, as far as I know, doing any of that stuff. Mr. Moser and his wife came to visit Ed one day because yes. he, again, they wanted to see, like, oh, how is he getting along? You know, he's he's kind of sickly. And in a short amount of time, he'd already lifted a giant slab out of the ground. Yeah, this and was that, right after he had purchased the land. It freaked them out. Yeah. Because it's like, how did you do this? Yeah. And, you know, because he, he didn't really have many, much tools then either. Yeah. He was just starting out. So that was the first start of it. He came there with this knowledge. Eventually, Ed, I think he got kind of lonely and he missed his family. Who knows what he left behind? He did have he did have a surviving brother named Otto, who he sent a letter to. And in the letter, he said, you know, I haven't spoken to anyone in Latvia for 35 years. And I guess Otto's son intercepted the letter and took it to the Communist Party because he was afraid to communicate with him. Oh, no. Man. So he never heard back. By the time Ed died, he had been alone a pretty long time, you know, which yeah. was a little sad. He had lots of visitors, but I think he, it seemed to me in researching this story, like he was wanting for a little more personal companionship that he never got. Because he had a lot of people come to visit, and of right. course he had a lot of strangers come and show up, and he was very friendly to them, but I think he he wanted a companion. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. His mean, closest living relative, I think, was a nephew that lived uh, Well, this is what happened. Away. When yeah. he, he felt that he was getting sick, and he took himself to the hospital, as you said. He wound up dying, and he actually rallied, which this there's a term for that. Oh, yeah. When someone's uh-huh. close to death, they get a lot better, and then... Die yeah, yeah. <laughs> right after that. So, hey, I'm feeling great. You know? <laughs> no, you're but, not. Um, yeah. yeah. So he went to the hospital. He died in the hospital. The funeral home that took care of him must be a distant relative of mine. It was Phil Bricks, oh, <laughs> Miami <laughs> funeral yeah. home. Okay. 
the castle on his death passed to Harry Leedskalnan, yeah. who lived in Detroit. That's right. Harry was Otto, his brother, who never wrote back, Otto's yeah. grandson. Problem uh. is, Harry was a World War II vet and ex-POW. Not exactly in he, excited about coming to Florida to take no. over a weird castle and also didn't he, might have the means financially. No, and he was also uh, plagued with health problems, yes. I believe. Yeah. yeah, he'd had a rough life. Yeah, And so Harry wound up selling it to a wealthy Chicago jeweler, the land, named Julius Levin. That's right. When Julius bought it, he didn't even know the structure was on it. Yeah, that was, that's like, one story. It's like, whoa, it comes with a castle. Yeah, it comes yeah. with a castle. And apparently he went down there and fell in love with it. And Julius is the man who named it the Coral Castle. Uh-huh, and see? this was after after Ed's death. Yes, right. So not during his lifetime did he ever call it the Coral Castle. Right. Yeah. And much like the Lamborghini Corporation was before Chrysler <laughs> bought it, right. it was never profitable. No. Uh, amazing so, things, but never, yeah. Never a lot of people went. Maker. Julius loved it. His family loved it, but they, they never made much money on it. And to this day, it's it's a testament, though. It's famous. So many oh, movies yeah. have been shot yeah. there. People yeah. know about it. Billy Idol wrote a song about it. There's a lot to it, and it's going to live for a long time, even now that Ed's been dead for years and years and years, and it's still always going to be there. And by the way, one of the things that Chris figured out in the arc was – he did all the math, and I can share this incredibly long thread about how many Newtons it would take <laughs> to tear it down. Yeah. And I don't mean Isaac Newtons. I mean the, the, <laughs> the measurement of force. Yeah. But the after Hurricane Andrew came through the area and leveled everything in Florida, in that area of Florida, the Coral Castle was undisturbed. Andrew was a Category 5 storm. The amount of force that it would have taken for the Coral Castle to be destroyed by a hurricane, there are no hurricanes that exist that are that strong. In fact, you could probably put the Coral Castle in the Great Red Storm on Jupiter and it would be fine. (laughs) (laughs) Even the worst joke ever. (laughs) I shouldn't have laughed at it. Apologies to the audience. No, there's been worse jokes. The uh, idea, though, is that it's, uh, well, one, they're tremendously heavy, but even very heavy objects in a huge hurricane can get knocked over and nudged. These things really haven't moved. Yeah. It's not only engineering, mechanical engineering, uh, but but architecture in a way and design that it's it's kind of lasted this long. Yeah, no matter what you say about how he did it, he did it. He did it. That's the yeah. yeah. You have to come back to that. No, <laughs> because like, it, the proof is in his pudding. There, yeah. the thing standing there, and really nobody can say definitively, in my view, totally how he did it. Some aspects, sure. Yeah. You know, but not the whole thing. But there are greater forces in here. I think, in, uh, oh, in his booklet, you have a note here that he, Ed kind of uh, uh, dismisses scholars and scientists, right? Yes. yes. The men with the long hair, he says. He was kind of poo-pooing the prevailing theories of science and physics and uh, and the, uh, the other natural sciences, right? And um, everything from botany to biology, because he had theories of the atom, right? About yes. the workings of it. And I well, think- he thought it was all... Magnets. He said yeah. everything was magnets. Everything he said, according to any modern scientist, including Chris and the Ark, is poppycock. According to, you know, <laughs> poppycock. Yes. Ed also said that to levitate something, you just had to reverse its polarity. Yeah, if you can figure that out. And but that I, was a secret. Yeah. yeah. And the other thing I remember too was when I was looking at this case, you know, ten or fifteen years ago, and I had come across these this knowledge about the tuning forks. Coral was perfect. Because it, it's a fairly, or excuse not coral, but the limestone, the oh, like limestone. The, yeah, the calcium carbonate. It has yeah. a specific 
structure to it that is consistent. It's a constant in terms of its density and value. So right. finding a harmonic frequency, a specific harmonic frequency as it relates to it, it would be perfect for that because it's not made of mixed materials. No, the, it, I mean it is mixed materials, but they're perfectly mixed. Yeah, oolite yeah. is is laid down in like spherical granules um, of calcium carbonate. A lot of that is, you know, it's the same stuff that uh, shells are made out of. Right. Sea animals have have made these, uh, as well as other uh, forces of limestone. Basically, it's laid down, so yes. it's it's um, it has its own distinct properties. When Ed talks about uh, his theories about the atom and electrons, and how every particle is magnetized. It also ties in a little bit with Einstein. Yeah. I am certainly not going to get into that. <laughs> no. Because <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. But <laughs> I can tell you that uh, from my layman's perspective here, it ties in with bigger ideas and especially uh, ones that are currently being kicked around. I had mentioned uh, previously here Michio Kaku and his big statement is the universe is a symphony of vibrating strings. Yeah. So it ties in with string theory and the thinking that's going on right now, a long time after Ed's passing. So you have to wonder, conversely, you look at this, is it an, is it another case of what, like a diversion? No, no, no. Just a, there's so many different ways this could play out. Sure. You know, I had mentioned P.T. Barnum earlier. Ed did seem to be a bit of a showman. He seemed to be somebody who had enough knowledge to plant red herrings for people. Yeah. I think... There could also be a Chauncey the Gardener situation here. <laughs> oh, I don't know if really? you've ever seen the movie Being uh, There, folks, but it's it's about a uh, Peter Sellers plays a man who rises to fame based on his really simple sayings that he makes that are statements, I should say, that are all based on television. And it turns out he doesn't really know anything. He knows how to garden, and uh, but what? But, <laughs> but, but I'm just saying yeah, the bigger idea but there, I'm not, and yeah. I don't mean to put Ed down. I'm just saying no, no, right. This the mythology that has grown up around this story, yeah, is. Bigger, you think it's bigger than the actual happenings? Well, maybe it is, and that's what they say about a story like this. Or maybe it's just a mundane thing, and but everybody's looking for something more exciting because we want to believe in mystery, and we want to believe that someone had mystical powers. Or I will agree with that to a certain degree, but what you're trying to do really is fill in the gap. And the gap here is you have a tiny little sickly man, as we've said. Not to make fun of him, but, it's, yeah. but he's a diminutive man, not very strong, and... On the other end of the story, you have a monumental collection of huge freaking stones. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that would take a whole company if they could do it and not very easily. And a lot of heavy equipment. And a lot of heavy equipment. Okay. And then what's in the middle? What happened in there? Other than yeah. during this 28 year span for one man by himself, not rich. And again, the P.T. Barnum thing is like, yeah, he's a bit of a showman, but he's eccentric. So he's he's entertaining people, but he never really got rich off of it. Yeah, you might have a lot of people every day, but ten cents a pop it may it may explain the uh, the thirty eight hundred dollars. It didn't really seem like he was out for money, and that wasn't a huge concern to him. He lived very sparsely. He didn't have a lot of nice things, just tools, and imagine just a bit of food and not much of that either. So, what's happening in the middle? What's the secret? Because you, he existed. People knew him. He had a history. And a, and a pretty crazy one, if you listen to our guest, Christophs. <laughs> At the other end of it, you have this amazing life's work. It's real. You can go see it. He did it. Well, 
that's going to wrap it up for tonight's episode. Visit the Great Courses Plus slash Legends for a free month of unlimited access to their courses. We'd also like to thank Christops Andresans for his time. Check out his podcast, The Eastern Border, on iTunes. This completes our most recent three-week run, so we'll be back in two weeks with a new episode. Our show is edited by Sarah Voorhees, and the theme is by Judson Crane. Sound design is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to The Ark and its lead researcher, Tess Feifel. But most importantly, we want to thank our listeners. You can find us online at astonishinglegends.com, as well as Facebook, Patreon, Twitter, Tumblr, Google+, and Instagram. Copyright Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Good night. <laughs>